Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. Sorry about that, we had a couple of technical difficulties there in the beginning. Um, I'm Steve. I'm Marty. And I'm Roger from True Robotics. And, and uh, we have a... Uh, I'm Marty. Sorry. And I'm Roger. Sorry about that. Didn't realize they had that running. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got to mute it if you have it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't uh, had the podcast yet since I got back. Well done. Delayed. So, what we um what we do every week is we talk about aquaponic cannabis growing and aquaponic growing and um, cannabis topics and um, we have uh, different. We're gonna try to bring on a lot more guests here in the future and um, hopefully have a guest you know pretty regularly or every episode ideally and um. Yeah, so um, um, I've had a, just got back from Jamaica, um, it was really fun down there. Um, we can tell by your audio so, quality. Yeah, my audio quality is probably much better now. <laughs> um, we're uh, looking at um, setting some stuff up down there and we'll have a bunch more information on that soon. Um, uh, we'll be I'll be out in Humboldt County here in a couple in the next month or two um, before we go back to Jamaica. So we'll have some some cool stuff to go show you guys there on the project that we'll be working on. And um, <laughs> uh, we had a funny story from one of the Rastas was telling me before I was leaving is they were heard some people sneaking up there to to raid the field the one night and. Um, they, uh, you know, um, uh, threw some rocks down or whatever to scare them, and somebody th returned back with machine gun fire, and they didn't know what to do. So they climbed up to the top of the ridge and started rolling boulders down at them. And they did it for 45 minutes, and finally the group of people down there left. And then um, uh, here they hear off in the distance a whole little convoy of army vehicles fire up their engines and, and go away. <laughs> And here the it was like a bunch of the army dudes that tried to raid their their field at night and um uh they didn't even realize that's who it was. They just were trying to protect themselves and it, I don't know, I just thought that was a really funny story. This was back in the eighties. Um, it's a vision, that's for sure. Everywhere is steep down there. Yeah, but it was just really funny, you know. <laughs> so how how have you been doing, uh, Marty? Um, I've been doing pretty good. A lot of personal stuff going on for the most part. Just some drama in the real life, as it were. But uh, so yeah, I was actually gone for a couple of days, and uh, um, I had somebody feeding my fish for me, so that worked out okay. But when I got back, I, I think I told you, Steve, I had lost some catfish, so that was that was kind of disappointing. Um, and I still don't know exactly what it was. After I talked to you, I tested the <clears throat> ammonia again, and the first time it came back three before I talked to you, and so I tested it again after that, and it came back at one. So I ran the test five different times over an hour just to see, and it comes back different every time. So I think there's something wrong with my test fluid yeah. or something because it should come back way more consistent than that. So... Um, so I uh, I ordered another test and it's gonna be here in a couple of days. But I already did uh, 
um, like two 50% water changes or more. So, um, but I don't know if it was like an infection or if it was actually was the ammonia or what, but um, anyway, I knew that the system was lacking in plants, so I was trying to accommodate for that in water changes, and I hadn't had an issue doing that before. Um, and I've actually had ammonia come back at three or even four before I do water changes. It's never, never been that much of a problem, even though it is high. And you said it's high specifically for catfish, and this is the first time I've ever done anything with catfish. So, you know, live and learn. As it were, I probably should have changed the water sooner, done something different, or... Maybe my ammonia test isn't really working at all. Um, so I obviously got to check more into that. But uh, when the other one gets here, I'll let you know how that turned out. But I did finish the indoor system, which I posted pictures of. Hopefully you guys were able to check that out. So I uh, was able to get that finished up and get some plants in it last night. So that's exciting. Everything seems to be going really well with that. And it pretty much looks like the back, except for with beds instead of barrels. So um, not, not too much different. Um, I really like that liner stuff. I think Roger, I think you posted about it a couple of times also, um, and sell it there in your in your store. And uh, that ultra skim liner is really easy to work with, and you know it's pliable and durable and all that stuff. So I used it to build out both the six by two by two bed uh, or tank, excuse me, and then also the I think they're about two by three and a half or so. Um, the beds that are on top of it. So it's nice to get that all done. So now I'll have the only thing I have left to build out is the shelf on the other side uh, with another vegging area. So I'll have two vegging areas on the end and the flowering in the middle. It's about six foot by eight foot in the middle between the two shelves wrapped in panda plastic. So it's working out pretty well. That's what I've been doing. Awesome. Steve, are you there? Yeah. Oh, so um, the issue with the catfish and ammonia and nitrites is that there's they absorb stuff through their skin as well as when they're respirating um, because the uh, I guess it gets much higher nitrogen in their blood. That's all um, because they don't have scales. It makes it uptake it quicker. Right. Um, Roger, why don't you uh, do you want to introduce yourself and then tell us about you know, what you've been up to in your grow and then you know some other stuff about uh you know, maybe some common issues and stuff like that. Absolutely, um, and I'll I'll go to that catfish thing he was going through as well uh, because I've seen it before something similar um, losing a couple of fish anyway. Um, one of the questions, and you sent me an email from a gentleman earlier, uh, KDAC, that uh, had asked about us. Um, let's see. Wanted to know why we actually grow aquaponically. And I'll, I'll get into what we actually do after I introduce myself this way. Uh, several years back, I, I got really ill, really sick. Went in the emergency room, and I, I spent a week there. Uh, but when I first went in, after the first night of being there, I asked him, hey, I, you know, because I'm, I'm not a hospital guy. I'm ready to get out of here. When can I leave? And I was told, you're never leaving. So the answer to why I started growing aquaponically is because when I did find out I was going to leave, I swore to myself I'd never end up in the hospital again. So better food, better living, happier body. Uh, that's where it all started. Uh, and it seems like getting your food straight was, was the first step. 
Um, what we ended up doing after we got started, of course, it happens with everybody that starts out in aquaponics, you end up seeing an, an issue with your plants. Uh, once you get over the fish issues, you start seeing issues with your plants, a uh, lack of nutrients. Uh, tops of the plants are yellowing, bottoms of the plants are yellowing, whatever. Uh, and there's, there's very simple and easy and fairly cheap things you can do to correct that. And when we realized that and realized there was nobody else out there actually offering the supplements needed for these plants, uh, we decided to pick up the reins and, and start out very small with just carrying iron, uh, which is the first thing we were using. Then we moved to potassium. And after potassium, we added everything, everything you can imagine that you would commonly need uh, that a plant would lack when it's being fed only by a fish. So it's only getting nitrate from a fish and just a little bit of other supplemental stuff that comes from the fish food, which is never enough. Uh, that's that's how we got started. Um, and from there, uh, we have started to grow again. We've added more products to our, our store to where we now are carrying the Ultra Scrim, uh, like Marty was talking about. And the, the, the different thing we've done with that is we actually offer it by the foot. So if somebody, you know, goes on the site and they say, hey, you know, I don't want to buy a $325 roll. I only need 20 feet. Well, we'll sell you 20 feet of it. Nobody else that we know of right now is doing that. They only sell it by the roll. So that, that helps out a lot of people cut their costs and, and keep things, you know, in their margins for what they're doing. Maybe they only need 10 feet, so they order 10 feet or 12 feet or whatever. Uh, and we, we are sending this stuff out daily. It's it's amazing how many people just want small pieces. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, like even even myself, I've used it to build out two complete systems, and I've used it to build a couple of, like, little worm bin buckets out of totes that I had before, just lining it to do different stuff with. And, and even then, I still have probably over half a roll left. So... You know, I definitely can see to where, you know, if you only want to build out a system, you why you wouldn't want to order, you know, a full 100-foot roll of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and talking about the worm bins, that's another thing. A lot of people are into vermicomposting. Well, if you use just whatever you find to put your worms in, whatever leaches from that plastic or metal or whatever it may be is going to be in your worm castings and when you make your worm tea to put on your plants in your aquaponics or in your regular garden they are going to uptake that whatever it might be and this ultra scrim does not leach anything and that's let me let me go back a little bit it's the ultra scrim fgc the food grade compliant it is it is fantastic stuff and Marty you said it's great to work with it's more than great to work with in my opinion um, it is fantastic to work with so um, what are you, why don't you tell us about what kind of kind of grow that you got going on well right now we're actually in the middle of pulling a lot of plants out uh, but we, what we were growing uh, our primary crop here is tomatoes uh, peppers and okra, or primary crops rather, uh, and we have we've pulled a bunch of plants out. We're we're at that stage uh, where we're coming out of spring, going into summer, and our our plants, most of them are about a year and a half old, and we found that's probably a pretty good limit. That's that's where you need to start pulling your plants when you're, we're talking about fruiting vegetables. Go ahead and get rid of them to start new, and the new plants are doing fantastic. Um, we're also looking at some. Go ahead. Did you do um, clones off of your old stock, or did you just do new seed stock? 
we we did clones for some and new seed stock for others. Uh, we wanted to change some of our plants uh, from one type of cherry tomato to another uh, to look at different productivity and see how it go. But we also took clones from the originals. That way, we would have our original production already set in, you know, going the right way. We've we've also added, uh, and this is one of the products we carry on our site now is a raft master. It, it's just a uh, four by six, not very big. But it's big enough. We threw some beaver wraps on there. If you look in our group, you'll see the pictures. Uh, fixing to put video. In fact, we already put some video, but I'm going to add some more. Uh, but we've got cantaloupe growing in this thing. We've got watercress. We've got chocolate mint. The reason we, we, we're moving our mint and our watercress there because the root systems are so vast that they, they will take over a media bed. But in here, we can control it. We can open it up, look in there. If we got too much roots, we'll just pull some out. Not a big deal. So that's that's where we're starting with that, and we're also looking at summer varieties of, of lettuce. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we ordered some seeds. We're still waiting for them to come in. We expect them any day, uh, and then we're going to start sprouting those and see what those summer varieties of lettuce do in there. And unfortunately for us, uh, all we can do is grow edibles. Um, when it comes to cannabis here in Texas, which is where we're located, it's a little illegal yet, so we're, we're having to hold out and just learn with you guys, and, and when the time comes, we'll jump right in. Now, Texas is coming around, right? You guys have had yeah. some recent legislation that it's yeah, really closer medical, than it's been. Yeah, there's some medical bill, I think. Double check here. Yeah, I've, I've been hearing uh, a few rumors about it, but I, I haven't seen anything concrete yet, so hopefully before too long come around because it's, it's – to be honest, it's, it's about – people getting some help that they really need. We've got people leaving here and going to Colorado and, and Oregon and Washington uh, that have kids that have seizures and stuff, and they can't get the medical help they need here that'll do those kids any good. So they're doing what they have to do. And it, when you uproot your entire family to do it, it's a real pain. Right. Or, or risk going to jail for medicating your kid, which, you know, there has been somebody from Texas I was reading about not that long ago, and I don't know if she's still being prosecuted or not, but... You know, basically couldn't afford to do both, couldn't afford to medicate and move, so chose to stay where she was and medicate illegally. So it was uh, it's unfortunate to see our tax dollars wasted on such things, but hopefully um, Texas okay. is coming around with the rest of the nation. Uh, so the they passed the bill, and it says that uh, the law demands DPS give at least three licenses to growers by September 1st, 2017. So, Slowly but surely. Yeah, so it looks like sometime maybe next year. You know, ideally. <laughs> you never know with cannabis law, though. You, you know, it's a, right. a crapshoot. And even when you get stuff passed, you could be like Marty and have them suddenly come in with new local ordinances. Right, that's for sure. You never ever know what's going to go in from there. So, but there's nothing wrong with with edibles. I grow. I have what uh, on my front porch. I have the salad bar, which is where I have all my. I think I posted before where I have all my you know lettuce and herbs, and I, I grow that kind of stuff along with uh, my medicine. Also, I grow companion stuff, greens and different various herbs and kitchen herbs and stuff are great to grow in there. I grow a lot of peppermint as bait plants and different things like that, which we've talked about before. So. Um, you know, and, and I even I started doing that um, before I started growing cannabis. And basically, once I was able to grow the the good tomatoes or the good peppers, either one, 
peppers are good because the stock is similar like Steve was talking about, but tomatoes nutritionally are essentially the same. If you can get nice big ripe tomatoes, you can get nice big ripe buds. And so basically I, I did all fruits and vegetables up until that point also. Um, and, uh, and then I stopped listening to all the people that told me I couldn't grow cannabis this way and did it anyway. So, um, I, I definitely, you know, really enjoy, you know, growing all the greens, um, you know, in that one little section of my front porch, we grow enough lettuce for five of us to eat every day and we just constantly eat it and, uh, and harvest it until it starts to slow down and we'll replant a different section and let it grow up and then pull the other ones out. Like you were talking about lettuce for us seems to get about, we probably get about seven or eight re good regenerations out of it before I feel like it starts to slow down. So usually about five or so I'll throw in some seeds in a different spot and let those start to come up. And so that way we can get sort of a perpetual harvest going on. And uh, so I, I love the edibles. Um, Roger, how big is your system that you guys are growing uh, food in? Well, we're, we're running multiple systems. We have one that's uh, now, since we had the Raftmaster, we're looking at about 700 gallons, so it's not huge. And then the other yeah. one is about 650 gallons, also not huge, but there's enough food coming out of those two systems. It feeds uh, as far as fresh veggies, and we're talking tomatoes. The, the other system I haven't even talked about, we're, we grow eggplant and all kinds of stuff in that. Mm -hmm. um, there's, enough, there's enough fresh veggies coming out that it, it feeds myself, my wife, um, my mother. My brother takes quite a bit with his uh, wife and, and their two kids, and we still are giving stuff away. And when I say giving stuff away, we're giving away basil, tomatoes, bell peppers, eggplant, spaghetti squash. Spaghetti squash loves aquaponics. By the mm -hmm. way, for people that are, are you know on certain diets, spaghetti squash is a must, and and you can do so much with it. Um, but yeah, it's the systems aren't huge, and they don't have to be. The fact that they can grow so much in such a small area, if you design it correctly, uh, is is phenomenal. And so let's touch on you guys, like you were saying, you're in a non-legal state yet, but you know it looks like the the possibilities are coming along pretty soon. Um, as far as plant, and we've touched on this once or twice before, but as far as plants that are good for practicing, you know, peppers are one of the best. You know, they do real well both um, in dual root zone or in other methods in aquaponics. And if you can crush it with with yields and on your peppers, and then you're going to do great. You can also pinch and bend them. You can train them. You can LST them. You can crop them. You know, in in all different ways like you would. A, uh, a cannabis plant and it, it'll work just behave very similarly as far as structure and, and training and how to get used to that so that is a great uh, a great option to think about absolutely I agree with that that that's any, anytime you can gain knowledge on a subject before you actually get involved in that subject uh, it's it's always beneficial to anyone that's looking to go that direction yep so on the on the nutrients, uh, Marty was talking about you know getting his nutrients right for tomato growth and getting nice ripe big tomatoes. Um, we we have pretty much mastered that. We we get if we want big tomatoes, we grow tomatoes that make big tomatoes, and and we get huge ones that are beautiful. They are when they're ripe, they are really really nice tasting. Uh, the cherry tomatoes the same way. We've got a few different varieties. One that's more of a sour tomato. And the more sour it is to us, the better. 
So when we get our nutrients right with it, we get a nice. Uh, I don't even how I don't know how to explain the sourness of it, but it's it's a real nice burst of of flavor when you bite into it. It's it's more of a winter crop than a summer though. Uh, but yeah, if if that's the case, then we've got that part licked. Now on the on the peppers, uh, it just from what you just said, I've got quite a bit to learn. Uh, but as far as the nutrients for them, we've got that part down. Right, really the, the main difference, tomatoes are a great indicator too, um, but the, the main difference is that they're, they're much more like a vine in the way that they grow. You can still clone them in the same way, like cloning suckers and stuff like that, but the, the stock is much more sensitive, it's much more vine-like than, uh, than what cannabis is. It's a little more woody and, and hardy, like, um, so that you can pinch and bend it and you know, make scrog nets out of it and different things like that. So, um, but nutrient-wise, you're you're still pretty much identical there in their nutrient consumption, as far as what they need while they're growing out, as opposed to what they need when they're flowering and different things like that. Just, just touching on that, your your need when they're flowering and such. Um, here in my part of Texas, we live east of Dallas, about 60 miles, and we have a huge temperature variance. We, we can go from negative 10 in the winter to 110, 115 in the summer. Mm -hmm. We we grow the same plants year-round. We never stop. We do add in certain plants, certain lettuces during the winter, uh, and certain tomato crops during the winter, uh, and then certain other crops during the summer. But for, for the most part, we grow the same stock all year long. Um, like I said, we've got plants that are a year and a half old that we're just now pulling out and replacing with new plants. Um, so if you're looking at cannabis, how does that affect you? Steve, you want to take that? As far as re how long can you keep a plant going before you would need to do something with it? Or is that kind of what you're... Well, that, I guess that may be one direction I was going with it. it it's uh, do, do the nutrition, you know, does the nutrition for that plant change? Uh, what, what variables change? Just, I'm not seeing any questions come up, so I'm trying to add one for you. Oh, oh, oh. Um, well, just so your mother plants, you can generally, most people do every two years or so, year and a half to two and a half years um, is when you're going to, you know, think about doing something with your mother plants, you know, finishing them off or, um, you know, doing something else with them. Um, but as far as everything else, you know, you're going to veg it for a set period of time, and then you're going to put it into flour, which you don't really, you know, you don't do that with peppers, but, um, you know, it, it, that I guess that would be a little bit different because they have a photo period um, and a set life, you know, unless you're talking with autoflowers, which are just going to keep going anyway. You know, they're going to have a set life period, and then they're going to die regardless. Right, so they, you know, cannabis is a little different in that they, um, you know, because they have that period, you have completely different stages of growth. So vegging means that they're growing taller and they're still growing leaf structure. And um, once they go into flower, so they start receiving less light or longer dark periods, however you want to put it, um, that trigger the flower cycle. And then they stop at some point getting taller or fatter and they start producing flowers and buds, and that triggers the death cycle for the plant. Once it's once it's gone through and flowered out, essentially it it would in its mind it's dying off for the winter, 
and then its seed stock would then regenerate the next crop year. So in terms of the the process of how it goes, you know, basically, you know, generally you're consuming a lot more nitrogen in the beginning, right, in veg while you're building all that plant structure. And then when you are you're going to start um, consuming more nutrients once you're getting deeper into flower and producing buds, then you're going to start, you know, producing more of your <clears throat> or consuming more P and K and calcium, magnesium, all that stuff. So um, that's the would be the differences between you know the different cycles, I guess. Whereas the um, the tomatoes and peppers don't necessarily have cycles. It's just when they're producing fruit or not producing fruit. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, absolutely, it does. Absolutely, and we, we we're fortunate with our. I talked about the temperature swings we have here. We're fortunate. We we actually produce fruit year round, um, and like I do throw in the different. Uh, tomatoes or peppers or whatever that that produce more in the winter, but I keep my my stock from the summer too, and they keep producing as, at the same time, just not as well. Um, so I don't know if that's that's just part of that cycle, but they they don't have that death cycle you're talking about. Right. And are you growing in a greenhouse? It is in the greenhouse during the winter. Uh, during the summer, okay. we open it up, so it's it's wide open. We do keep a roof over most of the system, but we do take in some fresh water from rain. And lately here in Texas, we got lots of that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. So you can actually, like, monster crop peppers if you have a cold enough temperature period where it's cold enough to put them into dormancy, but not enough to, um, to, to kill them, and you def completely defoliate them. Um, you can uh, bring them back out, and they basically will super crop. Which super cropping is when they grow just a ton of branches, real densely. Um, and basically, cannabis. the plant thinks that it survived the winter time, and now it's you know it goes back into a vegetative cycle and starts growing leaves and plant structure again, and will will essentially restart. Yep. So, and it grows significantly more branches. Yep, but you do is you take a plant that was potted, you defoliate it mostly, put it in like the fridge or something like that for a day or two or some other really cold area, maybe your basement or something, and um, and let it chill down for like a day or two. You gotta kind of almost shock it, um, but not kill it. And then um, after about a week, you can take the completely defoliate it. Um, and then bring it back up after about another week or two after that, and it'll. Interesting. Yep. Very. Yeah. <clears throat> there in Texas, you, I mean, I'm sure it gets cold enough. You can just put it outside. Yeah. <laughs> if it's negative ten, <clears throat> you yeah, can just well, set it out there for well, a little bit. You should be good. You don't want them to put them out if it's freezing, because the frost will damage it. <laughs> but if it's down to like you know 36, not, not 36, but like 38. 40, enough to cold shock it. Right. Well, fortunately, we, ne we never get that cold in the greenhouse. We, we actually heat our water. We, we don't use any kind of air heater in the greenhouse. And then that water, in turn, heats the air. So we've, we've never seen temperatures that low since we started because we heat the water. Right. And that works right. great. We, I did that a lot at the, one of the R&D greenhouses we worked with back when I worked at Aquaponics Source. That works really, really well. In fact, we had some solar heaters incorporated into that too to help save on fuel and all. 
Right, and this 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 year we're actually going to go around with uh, some compost piles and and use that to heat water with the tubes running through it and and see how well it works out. I, we we hear it works great. We've never tried it. Um, for us, the way we've been heating the water, it heats it so cheaply. It's it's costing us maybe ten or twelve bucks a month to heat the water to keep it at seventy through the winter. So we we've been happy enough with it. What kind of heater do you have now? Uh, we, it's it's one we actually build and carry in the store, uh, and we we bring in uh, a stainless steel heater element, which is it's not necessarily hard to find. It's just hard to find a supplier that you're sure is going to give you exactly what you asked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people people will end up when they'll they'll buy these heater elements, they'll go to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, and they'll find a stainless steel element, but the base of that element will be copper. So. Oh, in three or zinc, and in three months, your fish are dead. Yep. Right. So, uh, they, you've got to be very, very careful with that. And we've we've gone through uh, a lot of research and a lot of work with a, a certain supplier, which obviously I'm not going to reveal. But uh, we 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 get 100% solid stainless steel um, heater elements, and it's the base, the the plugs, everything, every every part of it, even the screws are the same steel. And that was that's one of our requirements we had to have because we didn't want any chance of anything killing somebody's fish. And mm-hmm. so far, people have loved these heaters. Uh, they're they're not the cheapest thing, but they're not expensive like the commercial heaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do for, they run? Uh, these are running about two forty seven, I think. I'd have to that's look to be honest. How that's many not gallons bad. Do you think that would heat? Uh, we've got we've got one guy that's heating three thousand gallons. Of circulating water and maintaining it at 70 degrees. Is it is that how it's set to maintain at 70? Correct. It, it comes with thermostat. We preset that thermostat, but it's also you can alter that to whatever you want. So if you want a little lower or a little higher, you can. Uh, that sounds great. I've I've actually had some experience with uh, compost heaters before. One of my friend has one on his place, <clears throat> and um, and uh, they do work relatively well. Um, uh, I do recommend using manures in it so that you have a relatively hot compost uh, action going on. And um, so if you've got some, you know, somewhere that you can get some some sort of like horse manure, he uses cow manure, obviously, uh, which not everybody has access to, but you are in Texas, so I would assume there's got to be some roaming around. But uh, <laughs> maybe if you've got access to that, uh, I would recommend that for your, go for to your the capital and to pull out a politician. And... <laughs> yeah. Some bullshit floating around there somewhere. Yeah, you'll be able to find one somewhere. I'm going to try to leave that one alone. No, I'm just kidding. Texas, everything is bigger, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. have even bigger shit, right? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> oh, so anyway, for the um, compost heaters, um, you know, they're, they've been in use for a long time, so they're obviously effective but only only to a point and you have to make sure that you're you know, maintaining your compost and that's that's some work but obviously not a lot um, once you once you get it in place so I think that you could probably easily spend you know $250 worth of, of at least time on building a compost heater let alone materials and so you know that definitely sounds like a good option especially for people that are you know, trying to heat a you know relatively large system in their garage or basement, and obviously there's challenges in setting up a, a compost heater in your garage. So, um, you know, I, I think that sounds like a great option. 
I don't, I don't see the problem with the garage. My wife would probably be upset, but I think it'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, the, the I'd, thing, I'd probably go with a. I'd probably go with a two hundred and fifty dollar tank heater over then. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the thing we're really looking at is is moving in with both uh, and trying to help people thermostatically control their compost heat, so that when water actually flows through these tubes, at a certain point when the water pr when the water temperature in the tank gets to a certain level, it shuts down. It, it, it stops it from flowing. That way you're not overheating. Uh, and then when the, it drops again, it, it picks back up and goes. Um, but then if, if you were to couple that with the tank heater, when the water dropped to a certain level below that preset, it would kick in because possibly something went wrong with your compost. Uh, so you got you got a backup. So if you're running something like tilapia, that has to have that warmer water, you don't take a chance of losing your fish, which so many people every winter, we get so many so many emails from people, what what, what can we do? Our, our water temperature's at 54, what do we do? Our fish are dying. I'm like, you need a tank heater, uh, but we can't afford it. I'm like, it, it's, there, there's nothing we can do. So well, We can't afford not to. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're either going to lose your fish, and you're going to have to use a different fish, and you're like, well, we want tilapia because they grow fast. Uh, or you're gonna have to switch something like what we raise, which is channel cat, and and uh, we we just harvested a huge harvest of channel cat today. We took every fish out, putting in all new fish, um, which I've got to finish up as soon as we're done here. But uh, channel cat can handle the extremes. I've I've seen them at 105 degree, and I've seen them at ice forming on top of the water, so they can handle the extremes. So we're in good shape on that. But if you want to keep your plants going. You still need to maintain, if possible, close to that 70 degrees during the winter uh, to keep the root, root growth going, keep your plant growth going, and, and keep that greenhouse warm. Right. And so, you know, obviously plants don't want to have frozen water or <laughs> anything like that or anywhere close to that. And you all definitely see slowdown in growth but as you get colder and colder water, even much higher than freezing. So it makes a lot of sense to heat the water as opposed to trying to heat the air around the water in in helps in hopes to just heat your greenhouse. So, you know, heating the from the water out, you know, makes you know physics is on your side there. So that's that's definitely a good way to go about it. So whether it's a compost heater or or a heater from the you know the two hundred fifty dollar uh, heating element, which is great to have a stainless steel option. Obviously, nobody wants to poison their fish. So obviously, you've done a thorough job of making sure that that's all there and. Uh, can be difficult to try and figure all that stuff out on your own, so it's uh, nice to have that place to go to. Well, I, I obviously didn't invent the type of heater. Uh, it came from somebody else, somewhere else. I don't even know who came up with it, to, to, you know, originally. But we we tried to improve it. We saw the problems because we built one per spec by whoever it was, and and it's on YouTube. All you gotta do is search it. Right. Uh, you'll you'll find the original out there. And then if you follow up with those guys and look at their later videos, you'll see they had fish deaths and and their their heater elements are corroding really bad. And we built the original they did the first time. We went through some – we had some issues. We didn't lose fish. We got lucky. We pulled it out quick enough. We caught it. Uh, the, the element was starting to break down and, and come apart. Uh, then we switched over. We spent almost six months looking and searching and talking to – different suppliers and manufacturers and finally found one that would work with us and guarantee us exactly what we were getting. So 
In other words, if we got something that wasn't what it's supposed to be, they were going to give us our money back or send us a new one to compensate and get back to where it's supposed to be. And that's our written agreement with them. Um, that's great. We appreciate you doing that legwork, and hopefully those that want to can, can take advantage of it, or you can people can obviously do it themselves too. So I see uh, Pete has a couple of questions here in the chat. Looks like Pete Flutie. Um, says with the high nutrient demands, how can you get the best quality grow without stressing out the fish? So um, obviously, if you're looking at the nutrient demands and adding supplements, you know Steve is probably the one to talk to about that. With his the dual root zone has kind of been his thing for adding supplements that don't get into the system, so that you can easier meet those demands without stressing them out. So Steve, you want to talk about dual root zone for a minute? Um. Yeah, so I mean if you're growing cannabis especially or you're growing fruit trees especially is another one. Um, fruit trees especially need an area for mycorrhizae in their root zone. If they don't have that, they just die. They just do not do well. Um, some some species will do okay. Pawpaw will do okay. Um, Australian cherry trees, there's a couple of some, some citrus will do okay. But you're, it, it'll do much, much, much better if you put it in even a shallow dual root zone. Um, I, we've tested that a bunch uh, in one of the experimental greenhouses I worked with, um, as well as some stuff in my own. Um, cannabis, peppers, uh, even tomatoes do real well just having access to that fungal layer in the root zone. Um, but uh, it really just relying on mineral salts, compost teas, you know, lab, lab teas or fermented lab. What do you call them, Marty? Fermented labs. That's what we usually call them. So basically just fruit fermentations that you do with, uh, with labs, which is um, specially bred bacteria from fermented milk. Um, and uh, we posted some information on that before. But, uh, I mean, to give you a rough explanation of it, when you, when you ferment milk with a rice wash, um, it, it will create three separate layers after it separates, which you have like the curds on the top and the layer in between, which is like an oil layer, um, which is inhabited by the bacteria that forms when the, uh, the milk starts to break down. And that, uh, so that serum in between is called lactobacillus serum. Um, so that's basically what you are culturing uh, by yourself and then you can take that extract and do a lot of different things with it. You can just mix it with molasses and add it directly to your system or you can do a fruit fermentation which is where you take fruit, um, you know, old rotten fruit or basically, you know, banana peels, whole bananas, nasty stuff that you wouldn't either eat or just whole fruit that you buy from the store if you just want to take it out and do a fruit fermentation in order to do that. Um, then you basically just soak it with the labs and it will start to break down and that way you can get stuff other than just processing sugar or molasses. You can mix it and store it for up to six months. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you can do with labs that will help breed that bacteria. Yeah, so, so labs are anaerobes and then compost tea are, are um, aerobic. So um, compost tea will, will survive a little bit longer in the system. Um, whereas if you're doing with the labs, you want to make sure you're pouring them, you know, kind of in the media bed on, onto the roots more than when you would, more than putting them into the sump or anything like that. You want to try and, you know, plant, pour it either in a dual root zone or in, you know, around the plants if, if not. Um, 
you know, and make sure you're getting it, you know, more direct contact with the roots. All right, and so let's see. Uh, Pete also said my other concern is that the pH needed by the plants to prevent nutrient lockout is a lot lower than the seven-ish that the fish need. How big of a problem is that? Um, so the uh, the pH um, at six point eight or seven, six point six to seven is is real good. Um, Roger, do you want to? You said you also could help him. Do you want to talk or answer the the um, this question or the, you know, high nutrient demand. How can we best uh, grow the get the best quality grow without stressing out the fish? Absolutely. Um, and, and stressing your fish is a big deal because if you stress your fish, you lose fish, right? Uh, it's a very good question, uh, and and I like what you guys are talking about. Uh, I want to learn more about that and always learning. I think uh, the most important thing for any of us to do is is to continuously learn and continuously grow. Um, our knowledge base so that we do better. Now as far as not stressing your fish, if you're using nutrient supplements like we carry in our store, um, obviously you don't want to dump your nutrients right on top of them. If you're using media grow beds, we suggest that you add your nutrients at the water inlet, so that'd be where the water's dumping into your media beds or into a sump tank uh, and let those kind of mix in a little bit before they actually get to your fish. And a lot of times we'll tell people, especially with really large systems, and we, we've got some clients that have systems. Uh, well, I'll tell you about one in Texas. I won't tell you the name because I'm not clear for that. 22,000-gallon system. Uh, and that, that's fairly large. And most people will say, oh, wow, that's big. Well, we've got another one uh, in Belize. Again, I'm not clear to say his name, uh, but it's 120,000 gallons. So it's absolutely huge. And he's rebuilding right now. Um, just spoke to him earlier, so I'm not sure if he's still going to be 120,000 or if it's going to get larger or smaller, uh, but we can't wait to see because he grows some really fantastic-looking stuff. The, the, the most important thing to do is either not dump on top of your fish or if you have no choice but to dump nutrient supplements into your fish, cut them with water, and add a little bit at a time. So it, it takes a little bit of time to, to get it done, but you're not stressing your fish. And the other question was the pH concern. Um, for the most part, your nutrient lockout when it comes to pH is going to be with iron. Um, and you can look at the charts and see it. You'll see things will come up and go down a little bit here and there, but your, your biggest lockout is going to be with iron. We combat that with using an iron chelate, and there's uh, an acid that is added to the iron allows the plants to uptake that iron even though the pH is, is high or even ultra high. And when I say ultra high, I'm talking in the, in the mid-9s, so 9.4, 9.5. The iron can still be uptake, you know, uptaken by the plants, and that's very important. Um, but when you do this, whether it's iron or, or something else, one of the most important nutrients we found is potassium. If your plants aren't getting potassium, whether it's out of the root zone or the dual root zone, or through foliar application, it will have a hard time taking up iron anyway. We don't know why. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a chemist. I just know what I see. Uh, so if you're not getting potassium to your plants, guess what? Your iron's not going to flow free. So that's just something to know and, and to watch. And if you start seeing certain things happen, 
uh, with your with your plants, and you think you need iron, I almost guarantee you you're going to need potassium also. It doesn't mean doesn't mean you need a whole lot of potassium. Sometimes it's just a little, uh, and you can look at your plants and diagnose what's going on with them by doing that. And we've we've got a handy little nutrient guide that that helps you look at that. It's got pictures, got drawings, got all kinds types of good stuff. Um, that you can look at and it's free to everybody so we don't care if you buy from us or not we just want you to have healthy plants right yeah those are a lot of great points there and I, I think that um, uh, we had touched on previously a little bit about uh, nutrients locking out other nutrients and so I think a lot of the a, a lot of times you might have a nutrient available that is being locked out if you're lacking say iron then um, you know you can lock out other other nutrients along with it um, because there is such an imbalance. Didn't we talk about that a couple episodes ago, Steve? Steve, you're muted. Yeah, he's muted. I didn't hear that, but uh, the, if you got too much calcium, you you lock out uh, potassium. Yeah. Too, well, too yeah. much potassium, you lock out calcium. Yeah, calcium. Um, yeah. So actually, if you go. And you type in, there's a chart for all of this, and it's called Mulder's chart, M-U-L-D-E-R-S chart. Um, and just type it into Google and then hit images. And there's a whole bunch of different diagrams. Um, but it basically, there's a couple different versions of it, but it shows you, um, in fact, I'll, I'll post, see if I can get this. This is one of the better ones. Um, I'll post this in the chat, and we'll see about getting this into the thing here. So you can actually get, there's an Australian company, I forget what the name of them is, that makes a little potassium test kit. But there's a, there's a couple of different companies now that have potassium test kits you can get. Um, if not, you know, just dosing it regularly and, um, you, you know, following your directions on your, your dosing is, is really, really helpful. Um, yeah, so it looks like iron is linked to copper and zinc on this one. Yep, no, iron you can test easily. Um, no problem. The problem we've seen with testing iron uh, is that every iron test we've seen so far doesn't differentiate between iron that's soluble and iron that's non-soluble. Now, you, you guys may have some insight on that. If you do, oh, yeah. I'd love to see it. Yeah, use HANA. The HANA tests are really good for that. It's the two best companies if you're looking to do home test stuff, if you guys are wanting to get fancy at home. There's HANA, H-A-N-N-A. And then there's also um, Lamote, L-A-M-O-T-T-E. Uh, Lamote's based out of Canada. They have a test kit for pretty much anything you could possibly want for freshwater. Um, yeah, and they're really highly accurate. And then the HANA ones are refractometers. The problem is the HANA ones don't work if you're using EDDHA um, uh, iron, like the high available and higher pH iron, um, unfortunately. Yet yeah, that's a problem for people in in Texas, Florida, most of the southern states of the United States. Um, we we all have high pH water, and we combat that. We we work with that, but still, a lot of people still use the EDA EDDHA uh, iron chelate because of that high pH, so that they can get their nutrient uptake. So that that that's a real issue, and and the real big problem with it is it turns your water red. It looks like you had a shark attack. Yeah. <laughs> And it makes it impossible to get any type of photospectrometer. Like if you try to get like a good higher end ag test on it, 
it, Correct. It screws up the ability for it to test. So. Now, now some of the tests, like let's say you're using the API uh, master's test kit, mm -hmm. some of the some of the tests come out accurate enough. Uh, pH, ammonia. Uh, it's when you get to the reds, when you're looking at something that has a red in the in the column, that's where it messes with you. And we found it's actually only about five points difference. Uh, so in other words, we have pulled water out of a system, dosed the system, checked both sets of water just to see what the difference was. Do I call that accurate? No, but it, it at least gives you somewhere you can look at with that API test uh, to, to see where you're at when you it comes to nitrite, nitrate. nitrate. Yeah, exactly. So those are I've used those, I probably use API test kits at least fifty thousand times, maybe more than that. Working in the pet trade, doing aquarium maintenance, just mass testing large systems and stores and stuff. And um, they're unless you as long as you keep them the right temperature range, that's the thing that screws with them the most. But they're in general pretty accurate. Well, the other thing that a lot of people don't do is the ammonia and the nitrate. You're supposed to shake. The, the part two, and if you don't shake it, it'll absolutely give you a screwy, um, a screwy result. And then uh, the other thing is, is that you're supposed to wait five minutes for all those tests, and a lot of people don't wait the five minutes. Um, those are the two biggest mistakes, I guess. One one other thing to add to that shaking or or lack of shaking, once or twice of not shaking, and your kit's ruined as far as those tests go because. You pour out parts of those solutions that won't mix with it later because you know when you do decide, oh, I should be shaking this, you start shaking it. Part of the solution's already gone and it's unbalanced. So the, the kit after that is never good. Yeah, it will drift for sure. See, now I can blame my little brother for my ammonia test being off. So <laughs> that works out well. Thanks for that. Yeah, Whether it's true or not, I don't know. I usually try to be pretty thorough in it, but, you know, it could have been anybody. But it's definitely not accurate now, whatever happened with it. Like, yeah, my, my ammonia test. And it, it is an API test kit. I just bought it at the pet store. So I'm sure it's probably just – and I'm sure it's got – was not kept inside of its temper, temperature range. So for whatever reason, it's not accurate. But I can blame my little brother now, so it works out. <laughs> so those are great questions thanks for that Pete hopefully we answered them for you I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about molybdenum um, especially in regards to cannabis um, but it also applies to other fruiting and flowering stuff um, molybdenum you want to keep about 0 .5 ppms um, but you can get it up as high as 0.1 ppm without really causing much issue um, some strains, especially some of your cushions and your your really really purple, really really black, really really blue, really really rainbowy uh, colored cannabis, will dramatically benefit from upping your molybdenum, um, which is the MO on the uh, the periodic table. Um, and so the best ways to dose that is you get a couple different options that work in aquaponics. There's sodium molybdenate which normally you wouldn't recommend someone dosing something with sodium attached to it, but the sodium in this case, you're dosing at such low rates that you know, you're know you going to have no long-term buildup. You, you're not going to have to dose this very often. Um, so it's not something that if you're individually dosing or boosting. But if you're, especially if you're doing strains that get purple um, and, and really, really... Uh, um, uh, 
you know, really colorful, really dark, really blue, really, really, really colorful herb will all will do this. Or if you're getting a lot of color, uh, uh, not color, um, temperature, you're getting really cold nights and stuff like that. It also mm -hmm. helps the plant with cold stress. It's like an antifreeze kind of yeah, it helps thing the, the plant, plant, right? Yeah, it also helps the plant produce like, what amounts to a, basically a type of antifreeze to keep it from freezing. Um, but a molybdenum is also responsible for the plant being able to break down uh, nitrate and converting it to nitrite and then converting the nitrite down to ammonia. It's responsible for those two enzyme production. Um, uh, the enzyme that's responsible for that, it's, it's one of the primary ingredients. So if it doesn't have enough, and since that's one of the, the biggest chains in, in aquaponics, it's, it's very important that you, you know, occasionally add a little molybdenum with either a good micro mix or individually. Um, what do you what do you use to dose with? Um, so the the best different options you have are sodium molybdenate, which we just talked about, um, molybdenum trioxide, which is um, molybdenum and oxygen, and then you have uh, ammonium molybdenate, which normally again you wouldn't normally use an ammonium product, but because um, again you're dosing in such low doses, it's just going to be immediately nitrified, but the same as fish waste would at the doses that you're going to be adding it. So. Um, those are kind of your three best options for aquaponics, um, depending on what's available to you in your country, um, or you know your local shops, your you know your nutrient shops, or or things like right. that. Roger, do you do you carry anything for that? We're about to. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Love to hear it. Yeah, so, anytime we see a need for something like that, it's it, it's it's a no-brainer. Put it, find it find it cheap and find the right stuff and make sure it's safe. That's the biggest thing. That's that's one of the things we did early on. Like I said, those horror stores we get from people buying from eBay and well, just I'm just going to stick with eBay. Uh, it, I don't want to see that happen to anybody. I don't care what they're growing, what they're raising or what kind of fish they're raising. If you're killing your fish, you're killing your system. Uh, and a lot of times, these people don't just kill their fish, they kill all their bacteria colony, so they have to start brand new. It's like a brand new system again, so we don't want to see that happen. So yeah, I'll be looking into all three of those, uh, because if, if there's an opportunity to make sure people get the right stuff for about the same price, uh, I, I'll be honest, I don't make much money doing this, but I do enjoy it. It's a passion, um, and just, just like you guys, what you're doing, trying to help and teach, it's a passion for you. Uh, we, we, we strive to do that. that. That's a big deal to us. And when we have people come back to us and say, thank you, hey, you know, last year I lost all my fish because I bought from so-and-so. This year I bought from you, and it worked. It's still working. That that just, it's everything to us. Right. There's nothing worse than, you know, feeling like, you know, doing your due diligence and then, like, falling prey to somebody who didn't do theirs. So, you know, like you were talking about the heating element or your, you know, uh, maybe not the best uh, supplements that are sold or different things like that. So it can be frustrating when you think you're buying one thing and you get something else. You think you've done your homework and then just because somebody else didn't want to give you what they were supposed to. I've heard a couple of horror stories myself of <clears throat> receiving things that were, you know, like uh, supposed to be supplements that <laughs> had baking soda in them, for instance. Yikes. So one of the other things that molybdenum does is molybdenum also helps the plants use um, convert inorganic phosphorus into organic forms that the plants can use more. Um, so that's one of the other reasons why, especially in aquaponic systems, you know, maintaining that, um, you know, at least one every three to six months is a, is a good idea.
Right. Uh, you know, process, better process phosphorus that's already in the system, too, even if you're not necessarily needing to supplement it. Sounds like it's converting from to a soluble that it can be uptake by the plants, right? Essentially is what you're going for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it helps the plants process it. Um, so we have... Um, um, do you guys have any other thing, comments on molybdenum or experiences with it or anything? I don't have any yet, so <laughs> I don't have any experiences with it yet, but uh, yeah. I've known about the nutrient, but it's never never really come up. Now, one of my questions to you, Steve, since I could ask a question, is um, stuff like eggplants it, that you know they have a lot of purple in them. Mm -hmm. uh, other fruiting plants like that that have a lot of purple, would, would that be something that would actually help them? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So them, anything with a ton of color, molybdenum will help. Anything, Also, f anything flowering, fruiting, again, molybdenum is going to be important for, for that, for the phosphorus conversion. Even tomatoes. Yep, tomatoes, too. And, and again, because you're running those high, it's responsible for the, uh, the plant synthesis to go from nitrate back to ammonia, which is what the plant uses. Awesome. So that's something we're, we're actually going to look into over the next couple of days um, and see what we can come up with. Uh, that's that's awesome. Uh, learn. I can't tell you how much I appreciate learning something like that, guys. That's that's great. Yeah, and we, so we have, um, in fact, I can show, I know this will be a little ghetto. Um, we, I really, really upped it, and we had a little outdoor bed that um, we had connected to a pond. Give me two seconds. I will pull up the picture here, um, where we did much higher dosing on the um, uh, oh, shucks. I want to do it. Timeline. There we go. Where we um, had these things growing outdoors in a little um, aquaponic thing connected to a pond, and we got them. You know, we were dual root zoning them, and these weren't close to finish yet, but, I mean, just jet black, completely black plants. Nice. So, you know, it definitely helps with your color in both cannabis and, and then, you know, other plants, especially in aquaponic systems. If it gets too low, um, because they're in much higher nitrogen environments, your plants really have a hard time uh, converting the, the nitrate, and they can really screw it up and can be kind of like a phantom issue where you you kind of got everything else pretty good, um, but it's an older system where you've stripped out the molybdenum because molybdenum is rarely found enough in fish food, and there isn't really any other inputs normally. So um, it's one of the ones that, that manganese, but we'll talk about manganese in a different episode. We try to do just one nutrient at a time. <laughs> cool. I saw Matthew had a question there in chat too. Sure. He was wanting to know if there were other issues running a high pH besides iron. Yeah, there's a bunch of different nutrients that get locked out. You can you can go to any nutrient lockout, you know, pH lockout, nutrient lockout table for for hydro, and it'll give you a good uh, a good uh, thing. But especially your micros, molybdenum, uh, zinc, manganese. I know those three are all locked out pretty quickly. Um, it also screws with your calcium. You know your your high calcium, more higher calcium availability there at the higher levels screws with your phosphorus uptake, and there, 
you got to keep them in ratio, which we talked about in I think an episode or two ago when we talked about phosphorus. Um, and uh, I think we, again when we talked about magnesium or calcium. So I think the the overall strategy is to shoot for 6.8 and then supplement with the iron, which is still technically locked out at 6.8. So the there are more issues with high pH than just iron, and if you check the lockout chart, but sort of the generalized strategy is to shoot for that 6.8 and supplement iron. Would you say that's the simplified version, Steve? Yep. In fact, I was trying to find a chart. Yeah, if you can if you can hit that 6.8 and just do that, and then use the Fe uh, DTPA iron chelate, uh, that that's great as long as you've got enough of the supplements in there to do what you need to do. Now, if they're not existing, like potassium's not a natural born substance, you're going to find aquaponics. You're going to have to add it somehow. Um, now, one thing I want to caution people on, a lot of people don't know this, there's another iron out there. It's called F-E-E-D-T-A. It's actually a broadleaf herbicide. Yep, it'll kill everything in your system. It'll kill your fish, it'll kill your plants, and eventually, if you get enough of it, it'll probably kill you. Although I cannot, I can't back that up because I've never seen that happen. <laughs> um, but be be careful because, and the the reason I say be careful is you can buy the FEDTPA, and it looks exactly like the bad stuff, and that's mm -hmm. what happens a lot on eBay. People will buy this mid-range stuff that you can use at 6.8, and doesn't change your watercolor much. And they get sent the stuff that is a broadleaf herbicide, and that's that's one of the things that we ran into, where people were losing fish and losing plants, mostly fish, uh, and and one of the reasons we really kicked off the Trocophonic store and went that direction with it, uh, to make sure people got exactly what they ordered and not some cut down version or cheap version, because this this other stuff you can get really really cheap, and you can sell it for the same price, mm -hmm. so you make a whole bunch of money. But you kill people's fish, and and they don't care. Yeah, that's terrible. So that's just something to watch out. That's something to watch out for. It is terrible. People have no no scruples when it comes to making money. So uh, it, it's a terrible thing to see happen. Thanks, Matthew. That was a great question. Yep. So we have another question we got in from from KDAC from an email. Um, he said. Uh, First, we'd like to hear why true aquaponics grows aquaponic, uh, which he talked about that earlier. Um, and he also asked if you grow cannabis and why, which you also talked about. Um, he says, last week you talked about a little about ferments. Uh, I'm trying to make this hobby as cost-effective as possible, and the Korean natural food farming method seems to be promising. Um, what is your experiences with the ferments? Um, they're great, man. I, I would highly, highly recommend them to add them into your normal nutrient rotation um, in an aquaponics system. I think they do great, and um, you know, I haven't had any any issues really with them in the system at all or anything. Um, I've had a really good results with them. So, kind of Marty, I'll let you talk on that too. Yeah, I mean, hey guys, real right quick. Yeah, go ahead. I, I've got a bout. I've got a bout for a second. I'm putting new fish in the system. I've got to go out here and get them out of the bag before they suffocate. I'll be right back. <laughs> Okay, sounds good. So, yeah, I definitely, you know, I pretty much do all of my supplementation with, I, you know, which is essentially a fruit fermentation, um, and then with the assistance of the worm bin. So I think I've highlighted this a couple of times, but 
my overall process and everything sort of started with figuring out how much I could grow based on just the stuff that I threw away. So um, essentially what I, I've developed now is just sort of a, a little pattern that I go through in order to do my fruit fermentations or worm teas or different stuff like that. So everything for me starts with a Bokashi bucket um, that I just have in the kitchen. And so anytime I have like banana peels or apple cores or corn husks or any of those types of things, um, it goes into that bucket uh, with just some EM1 and uh, <clears throat> it soaks in there until the bucket gets full and gets needed to be emptied. And so it's kind of like a pre-soak or pre-fermentation. And then I take that and just pour it. That's what I feed into the worms. Um, so I have a half barrel that I uh, keep all my worms in. Um, I started with just two pounds of red wiggler worms uh, that I got from a local farmer's market here. Um, and then I just continuously feed them that. Um, the water that comes out the bottom, I can do a couple of different things with it. I can just use it as like a concentrate. So I'll mix it like 50-50 uh, with water and then aerate it and uh, add some molasses to it. Um, I can use it uh, just as concentrate if I just want to add that right into the beds. I've done that before. Um, I use it to inoculate new systems and help assist in that. So um, you can, I picked up a couple of different micro packs from a couple of grow shops I've been to, like the one I highlighted in one of our previous episodes was an uh, MPK pack. So I'll mix those in um, into that and then use that to inoculate my dual root zone layer. So I use it in sort of a variety of different ways after the worm juice comes out either to make a traditional aerated tea. Um, I've made anaerobic fermentations also um, with the labs. So that's definitely another thing that you can do, which is no aeration at all. <clears throat> you guys can look into doing that. Um, there are numerous ways of doing it, instructions, but essentially it's just soaking a bunch of fruit uh, in a fermentation with labs and different stuff like that. I've even added some of my worm juice into those. I didn't necessarily notice a big difference one way or another. Um, but uh, there's definitely a lot of different things that you can do with, uh, with just the worm tea or fermentations. Um, so for the most part, I don't really add anything uh, nutrient-wise into my systems up until relatively recently when I started experimenting with some of the stuff I bought for the podcast, which was the kelp. Um, and uh, the NPK pack, and seems like there was something else. I, oh, uh, the Mammoth P, um, which is, again, just a, a different microbe um, that I've added in. I've added both to the worm bin itself, and also I've added in um, doses after the worm juice has already come out. I've added it to just directly into the dual, <clears throat> the dual root zone layer, so... Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've experimented quite a bit with, uh, with mostly just trying to consume what otherwise would have just been my waste. And for the most part, um, I haven't ran into too many deficiencies that I haven't been able to solve with either a water change with my well water, which provides me with a lot of iron and my macronutrients and uh, everything that I get through my worm bin where I, I try to focus on fruit going into my worm bin um, or at least fruiting vegetables. So if you have like 
you know, broccoli ends or um, different things like that that will go in there. I, I try not to just put straight greens in because it um, puts more nitrogen in my production, which I, I generally get enough of just from the system itself. So that's kind of my, my overall process, I guess, of uh, sort of how I work in fruit fermentations and vermicomposting and that kind of stuff. And, um, and then you can take supplements and add stuff into that as well if you want to in order to go bigger and better, as it were. So um, the rest of those kind of like follow-ups, which you just kind of answered about ferments. Um, he says... Um, He has some questions about crayfish. Um, we'll actually do an episode where we'll we'll cover. We're gonna start doing like a fish or a cray, you know, a creature or something a little more in depth, kind of like we do with the nutrients. Um, we're gonna start that soon. Um, and then uh, he also asked about. Um, he also mentioned home growers can farm their own insects. Um, I already farm crickets. Uh, tell us more about which insects you can farm that are advanced. Uh, advantageous in your garden um, how are they implemented in your garden um, so um, as far as beneficial bugs there's a bunch of different species um, the ones I would recommend the most are beneficial nematodes by like a country mile um, they work really good for an enormous range of pests um, but as far as the the insect and fish food production I think we could probably do a whole episode on that and cover that real in depth and that might be a better way to handle it rather than um, Doing that, but yeah, if you raise crickets, that's a great way. I like roaches; um, they're my kind of favorite one because they breed and they're real high in fat and protein and calcium. Um, they breed real easy, and you can produce enough to do even a commercial size grow with just a freezer or something like that. Black soldier flies are popular, also. Yep, they're another great one. Um, one one thing a lot of people don't think about is a bug light above their aquaponic system above the fish tank. Yep. Bug lights are, are amazing because two things happen. One, you feed your fish, which is great, and it's not a full-fledged feeding, but it, it's something. But you also draw away moths and other bad insects from your plants. And we, we are very successful doing that as far as keeping caterpillars off our plants. We do get hit from time to time, usually once, maybe twice a year. So we have to go out and actually spray our, our BT to get rid of caterpillars. Uh, but that's it. Without that bug light, for the, for, the, for the first two years without the bug light, we were getting hit and overrun with caterpillars. We were losing entire crops of Brussels sprouts and, and kale. Anything that was cabbage-like, we were losing because of the, the caterpillars. Now, since the bug light, no problem. We, we do have the problem once or twice a year, but it's not like it was. So that's, that's just one other thing you can do with the bugs. Yeah, it's, it's great. Just be mindful if you're doing a commercial grow or something like that, it is a potential entry point for pathogens. So for, for home grows, that's really good, but if you're doing a commercial grow, that might not be your best option. I agree. But uh, no, that's that's awesome. It's a great solution for insects and all that. I've never heard of uh, never heard of um, that being that successful. It's, it's great to know. Yeah, we definitely use them um, outdoors to draw them away from plants, and you know we're probably the same way. And we still get hit a little bit with uh, um, with caterpillars, but I would say that definitely would recommend it outside. And uh, you know, over the fish tank, just just be careful that you're <laughs> it's not falling in the fish tank. That obviously 
would be a bad situation. So, high, uh, really high proof alcohol like isopropylene or moonshine or rum and things um, are great for uh, like white rum are great for for spraying on them in a, on a spray bottle to kill the caterpillars. Right. And Roger, for those that don't know, do you want to say what BT is? You said I, I know what it is, but do you want to elaborate a little bit about what you spray on to for caterpillars? If if I can find the bottle to read what it is, I'd I'd love to. Um, we get this stuff and we buy it in, in huge quantities, and here it is. Uh, this particular one is a Thuricide BT Caterpillar Control. Uh, it is all natural, like I said. You know what it is, but it, this stuff is not something that's that's going to kill your fish, not going to harm your fish, not going to harm you. Do I suggest drinking the bottle? Probably not, but uh, I mean, it doesn't taste as good as the white rum, even though we like spiced rum. <laughs> but yeah, it, this stuff, I mean, you spray it on your plants uh, when, when you do get hit with caterpillars, and within a day, the caterpillars start to turn black and they die. Uh, at that point, we just we don't even bother with them. Uh, you can spray them off after that's done. Um, sometimes, if if like uh, my mom got hit with a really bad uh, run of caterpillars a, a month ago, we we sprayed them, and then a week later we sprayed again to take care of any eggs that might have been left behind that hatched out, and she's had no problem since. Uh, but that that Thuricide BT caterpillar control that's that's what we're talking about, um, and it's a it's a big long word I probably can't pronounce. I'll give it a shot. Give yeah. me a second to find it. It's Bactillus thur. That's that's as far as I'm going with it. <laughs> it's uh it's Thuricide Bactillus thurogenesis. Thuringgenesis. That's that's my point. So it's not no point in even trying to say it. <laughs> Go to Lowe's, Home Depot, whatever. Thuricide BT caterpillar control. We've thought about carrying this stuff ourselves. Uh, we we have not found a competent supplier yet. And that's one of our big things is we, we if we don't have a competent supplier that we believe in, we're not going to carry the product. No matter what we can make off of it, it's not worth it. So, well, it's relatively available in grow shops, too. Yeah, it's it's right. not like it's a necessarily yeah. a new thing. Like, we already knew what it was, but just I thought some, some people listening might not uh, Correct. know what it's, it is. It's, it's easy to find. And another note about it is that that product uh, is on both Oregon and Colorado's list of approved pest control. Um, so, you know, you don't have to feel weird about putting it on something you're going to smoke. Um, it is already approved in two states on their approved. Their did you, speaking of that, did you see that uh, Mighty Wash got flagged in Oregon? Mighty, I think a Mighty Wash. Let me look. That's on the California or Colorado list. i got to finish... I'm working on merging the two with aquaponic stuff in mind and trying to... This was just like the 12th or 13th. It wasn't very long ago. What did it get caught with it in a, as a directed? Or, or not as a directed? Um, I'm bringing up the, the picture now. I think there's a way to... Yeah, you can share your screen on the left hand. Pyrethrins. Oh, I had pyrethrum in it. Py pyrethrins. Oh, okay. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, pyrethrins is pyrethrum based, but they allow a lot of pyrethrum based stuff. It's interesting. Well, this is uh, from the Oregon State Pestery Pesticide Advisory that it's been, uh, it not approved use of 
megawash. Good to know. Yeah, it's so that's two of them now this year's megawash, and then there was um, Guardian. Guardian, which everybody was using Guardian. Everybody loved Guardian because it was supposed to be good. It's so effective. Now we know why. <laughs> yeah. So Roger, Guardian was a uh, an anti mite control that had an ingredient in it that it wasn't on the label, and it was a restricted ingredient. Here, here in Texas, mites only grow on chicken butts. Just, just saying. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if uh, if anybody watching. I thought that was worth announcing once you said something that reminded me of it. So. Oh, well. um, I don't know if you're using it or if anybody else is, but don't use it if you're in Oregon and probably soon in Colorado because most of the time once Oregon picks up on or any of the states pick up on something like that where it's not listed in their ingredients, that's going to get banned in the next state. So. Yep. And they'll retroactively do it too. Like Just because you sprayed it on there two months ago does it, and you harvest doesn't mean they're going to let you go through it and grandfather your herb. They don't do that. Yeah, you're not going to like the answer, but the answer is if you've used it, you need to tear everything down and start over again, which obviously sucks, but it's when you say When you say tear everything down, you're not talking about tearing an entire system and greenhouse and, and plowing under and starting brand new, are you? You're just talking about no, pulling plants. Talking about plants. Pulling out, yeah, but you're talking like $500,000, a million dollars worth of plants, $300,000 worth of plants. And all of them are that you just spent nutrients and power on, and you just you're gonna get no return for all of those. Well, then I say pull it and use it yourself, and and start over. Yeah, well, they're not allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. Right. And not that I'd ever condone use of the black market, but that <laughs> always exists. <laughs> I'm gonna act like I didn't hear it. <laughs> okay, like I didn't say it, so that works out. <laughs> yeah. What are you guys? Heard what? Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, Marty, do you want to tell us about how the uh, an update on the Oregon situation? Uh, not much of an update yet. Everything's been filed for the lawsuit. It's waiting to get accepted, which obviously is gonna take time. Just like we, you know, we talked about before. So, um, I still anticipate. You know, essentially being limited to 10 plants anywhere, residential, whether you're rural residential or urban residential, you're still zoned. Some sort of residential, you're going to be cut down drastically on the number of plants you can grow. And if you want to grow outside at all, then you have to essentially pay for their non-compliance permit, which I don't, I still don't understand that. But uh, you can have a permit to be out of compliance. It just seems like... <laughs> That should just be a permit, but yeah. If you um, don't have the permit, you're out of compliance. If you have the permit, you're out of compliance. Why would you pay it? But basically, it's just <laughs> wow. So that, yeah, I mean, it's basically so that they can at some point take it away from you if they can get legislation through in order yeah. to do that. So, uh, so that's still the same. It's probably gonna be the same. I'm probably um, not probably. I'm planning on paying my. I think it's fifteen hundred dollars for the permit itself if I get accepted and it's like a hundred and sixty three bucks to apply, which I don't get back even if I get declined. So altogether it's like sixteen hundred and forty three dollars I think that it's going to cost me to be able to grow in my backyard. So that's fun. Um, but they are getting sued and eventually that's hopefully gonna change, but I, I I'm not at all 
thinking that that's going to happen for this year. So I'm pretty much just planning on my 10 for this year. And uh, yeah, so that's not, not really much of an update, just waiting for it to get accepted. Um, I guess the, the pesticide thing is really about the only thing that has changed um, so far. So that's that's been it. Other than that, season's pretty much underway here. Um, you know, the most people are in the ground or, or putting in the ground already. So, um, you know, veg will run over the next couple of months, and then we'll hit flower. So, yeah, that's pretty much where we're at here. I think that with everything starting up already, you know, since people are already putting plants in the ground and season is already underway, there's not really much in terms of legislation that's going to change for for this uh, this season. So I think it's going to do exactly what they wanted to do, like I talked about before, is create a vacuum in the market and cut out a bunch of people that don't otherwise want to grow uh, or that can't really afford to grow. Um, so it's been a little been a little disturbing to talk to people that are going to be able to afford to effectively grow their medicine. I mean, when you, you know, you're talking to like a 70 year old lady who uses it for, uses raw cannabis leaves to make her, uh, her oil for her arthritis. And now it's going to cost her another 1600 bucks so that she doesn't have to set up a grow room at her tiny little house. It's just, I don't know, it's ridiculous and discouraging and makes me don't feel like <laughs> I live in a free country, but um, other than that, it's uh, it's been pretty you much don't. the same. And that's in a state where it's legal. So yeah, that's in a legal state that we're dealing. Yeah, imagine where state. I live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even grow this. I don't, I'm. I'll be honest. Right now, I'm not a user. Um, I, I don't need it. But if I had a medical need, I could see wanting to. Mm -hmm. Uh, and. That I've, I've never seen, I've never understood why it's illegal anywhere. It doesn't make sense to me. It, it should be a plant that grows on every corner, everywhere, uh, for people that need it and for, you know, other stuff, textiles and, and fuel and you name it. Food. Because it directly depends with pharmaceuticals, that's why. Well, exactly. It's money. It's all about money. Yep. And that money is the reason why it's been legal as long as it has been without the feds cracking down on it. The states are making out like bandits as far as taxes. And as long as they keep padding the pockets of the right people, it'll stay legal. Yep. But that's why you're seeing these like, uh, like Ohio's first draft bill. I haven't looked at their new one yet, but their first draft bill was basically like a cartel. Of, yeah, that, of that's the one. That Florida was the same way. Oh, yeah, wow. Florida passed. They had it on lockdown for like three years. Yep. Ohio, when Ohio at least voted ran it up. Yeah, when Ohio ran it up, they, they had it set up to where only certain people could grow, and they were big business, and isn't that the one? Right. No, but Ohio and, just, just passed a thing. Yeah, the, the second time around, they just passed it, or not passed it, they, I think they're putting it up to vote soon, right? No, no, the, the governor just signed it into law. Huh? I, thought. I haven't heard about that one. Hold on. Yeah, anyway, that's basically what it was. Was It was basically just creating a monopoly. And that's what happened in, in Florida. The same thing is still happening there. So I, I haven't heard of any – I mean, I don't stay up on Florida news or anything, but I haven't heard of that changing 
where they basically just create monopolies. And so Oregon was drafted to sort of are to sort of prevent that. And then now they're just basically trying to still do that, but <clears throat> on the city and county level as opposed to the state level. So Yep, so they, the bill is called House Bill 523, and John Kasich signed it last Wednesday. Um, it'll take effect in 90 days. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. John Kasich signed a, a pro-cannabis yeah. bill? Yeah, he's, well, don't get me started on politics. I'm shocked. Well, I didn't still, mean to go into politics, but I'm, I'm shocked. No, no, there's a lot of Republicans. Uh, uh, cannabis legalization is a very bipartisan issue. There's there's prominent speakers in both the right and the left and has been for at least a decade. Not um, in Texas. One of the, not, 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 not blanketly, but there is there is very adamant supporters in both halves of the coin. Yeah, that, that's true because obviously from a financial standpoint, you know, they can clearly see the benefit to that. So. Out of states' rights. Right. I mean, even at, I guess I was just thinking more on appealing to their greed being more effective than their aspect of liberty or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, like I was saying before, I want to feel like I live in a free country. And so, obviously, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So, seems like it's a no-brainer there for me, personally. If you want to grow hops and make beer, then... Have a good time. I'm fine with that. <laughs> they don't yeah, I don't, I don't that. see the difference. I don't see the difference. Yeah, they don't restrict hops. You can make. There's no limit on the amount of beer you can brew. Oh, you mean you don't have to track every seed that you crack and yeah. how much bud it produces and where it goes and how much alcohol you made out of it? Because that's what you have to do in Oregon if you want to be a grower now. Yeah. Actually, if you ask my wife, I do have to track all that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's hey. that's for other purposes. That's different law enforcement. That's my problem, right? <laughs> that's marital law enforcement. Yeah. Way more threatening. Wife aggro, wife aggro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, and that can I use this section? Uh, we try to do, a, uh, you know, products. Do you, Ramardi, did you have anything you wanted to touch on this week? I got two products. I don't, actually. I haven't been anywhere to get anything so um, next time I hit up the grow shop I'm gonna grab some more of that uh, some more stuff from that MPK stuff because they had uh, they had a few different um, things I thought that were interesting like they had a silica packet that was basically just powdered some sort of powder supplement you had but I didn't have time to check it out when I was there last time I grabbed those microbes and stuff but I'm gonna grab a couple of those things and see how they work I'm going to have some fun with TSA and bring a bunch of nutrient fertilizer with me and I come out to, to Humboldt and uh, it should be close enough to where the two of us can get together. Maybe we can do a podcast sitting next to each other or some shit to have some fun or something when, uh, when oh. I'm out on the West Coast. So um, I'll bring you some, some goodies for you to try and test out and some, we'll have some fun. I'm sure we'll find some later on. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, we had somebody ask about Hygrozyme. Um, I couldn't find a real good ingredient list for this on their website or anywhere else. If if you happen to be able to find one, that would help me out. But 
I couldn't see anything reason why you wouldn't want to use it, but I don't see anything that beneficial in it that wouldn't already be be found if you're doing everything else right, especially if you're using compost tea and and labs. I don't really see the need for it, or you know, if you're doing your um, your kashis and stuff. Um, and then the other one was biocozyme, um, and I wouldn't recommend that because it has ammonium sulfate in it. It's also a two-two-two across the board. And you don't need that nitrogen. That's what your, um, um, you know, that's what your fish are for and all that. So you really want something that's at least a one three four or a one two two or you know something that's lower in nitrogen. That you, you know, it's just the nitrogen's too high and it's in the wrong form. It's immediately available as ammonium, so it's going to spike your ammonia right off the bat, um, which can be a huge problem. Um, and then uh, he also asked if adding a recharge to your aquaponics system, how much do you add and should it be kept strictly in the soil zone? Um, no, you can use recharge as much as you want in the soil or the water. Um, and as far as how much you add, just follow the directions on it as both hydro and soil directions. So, um, you know, use as directed, I guess I would say. Uh, my, uh, you know, brewing it is always the best. Using it for your compost tea, adding some of it for that as an inoculant is really the best way to go but um, you know that's that's would be what I would have to say on that um, Roger do you want to talk about maybe some um, common problems you see are the most common problems or um, you know something like that that you you run into or people write you or you see the most or maybe a top five or something like that I don't have a top five because there's not that many issues um, when it comes to nutrients there's a top two, um, and, and I've talked about them a couple times, but it's it's iron and potassium, and not in that order. Potassium is the top nutrient deficiency in aquaponics, and that's that's what we see worldwide with all the people I deal with. Worldwide, potassium is their biggest lacking nutrient. And, again, I'm, I'm not talking about the cannabis plant. I'm talking about every fruiting plant, uh, leafy veggies, uh, and what have you. Uh, with with cannabis, because of my lack of, of knowledge with it, I'm not sure exactly if y'all have the same issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but but potassium and then iron, and the very next one after that is calcium. That's your macronutrients. Then with your micronutrients, it's a whole different story. And and you've opened my eyes a little bit to some of that tonight, uh, and I'm glad for that. Uh, we're going to do some new research and, and start adding some things to the store that, that folks may be looking for, uh, manganese, that's a really big word. Hey, hey, I had some rum. You know, what do you want? <laughs> oh, dude, hey. you should have start rattling off try um, uh, turkey no. and no. Uh, cannabinoids, and then we can really get you in the tongue twister. <laughs> I can't pronounce it either, no. Roger. Just wait till Steve says it, and then say, "Yeah." Look. <laughs> what what that guy over there said? Yeah. <laughs> I can actually pronounce them. It's just uh, if I'm not looking at the word, I don't pronounce it so well. How about that? <laughs> you can do uh, it. Yeah. You just like rum more. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. What's the acronym THC for again? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. What Steve said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, one of the, another common problem I'm seeing lately is a fish issue. Uh, people are losing fish like crazy, um, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on. We're researching it. We're working with a lot of people all over the United States, um, 
Sure. A lot of them are here in Texas trying to figure out what the heck's going on, and especially with catfish. People are losing a lot of catfish lately. Sure. So I can actually chime in on that, having done a lot of pond work and a lot of outdoor fish work and aquaponic experience. The aquaponics source on there is pretty much the main person that did their, um, you know, customer service, problem solving, and stuff like that. Um, the the two biggest reasons you lose fish, especially in the spring and the fall happen a lot um, is because the fish, especially in the springtime, are coming out of a dormant period where their immune system isn't quite as strong. Um, and when you get these temperature fluctuations in the spring, um, temperature fluctuation and pH fluctuation, a quick change in either one is the quickest way to lower a fish's immune system and get uh, pathogens to, to take off in the fish. Um, especially in the springtime when they're coming from cold going back up to warm, that is the, the most delicate time for the fish, and especially in ponds, we used to really load them up with, they call it pond salt, which is basically Epsom salt, but it helps them a lot with their resistance. Um, but they definitely, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're, um, you know, making sure that you have some kind of heating device in any kind of outdoor system, especially, uh, or any kind of, you know, area that's going to fluctuate temperature. Um, because of that, and you will lose fish absolutely. And we used to see it all the time in koi ponds. Uh, people lose their, cat, lose their catfish. Sometimes they're um, pond sharks, uh, Chinese hyphen algae sharks, which are a great, great way to get rid of uh, hair algae if you have hair algae in an outdoor system. Probably the best, and they'll get decent size too. Um, and totally harmless with tilapia, catfish, anything else that you have. Um, they're a real good fish to coexist with everything else. But um, plecos seem to be. Pocostomus also seem to be a little more sensitive to temperature swings also. Yep. They, they but they're also like, great tank cleaners. <laughs> yeah, great tank cleaners. If you want one that's more cold tolerant, again, the Chinese hyphen algae eaters can tolerate anything at Koiken. Um, so can your Chinese, they call them Chinese algae eaters, which is like a smaller silver and black guy, um, uh, little fish that you can get at the pet store. Um, they're pretty cold tolerant. Or garas, gara rufa, panda garas. You think that they would survive being so small in a tank with like large size koi, though, or would oh, you like put them absolutely. in a sump tank? Absolutely, no. Something? They're they're so they're super quick and they dart around. So if something came up and even tried to get in there, especially the garas, they're real cool because they're climbing through your plumbing. Because I, I have like this one huge koi that's a, an asshole, like. Sometimes you'll get murderous koi. I've seen that before, too. We, we have people in Texas like that. Yeah. Bigger ones, too, right? Absolutely. He just left. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I've had uh, I've had um, plecos in tanks pretty much all the time with koi, and I've never really had a problem. But mm -hmm. if I put plecos in with this same tank with this one big-ass koi... It's like he just beats the shit out of them. Like you can sit and watch him just like smash him. <laughs> That's so strange. I like anything that looks different than him. Mm -hmm. He'll just beat the shit out of it. So it's like a racist koi. It's a racist koi, dude. Like we had a what are you know the ones with like the big eyes? I don't, yeah, I don't eat, know what they're called. Eat but the koi. The eat the koi. Yeah, the big bubble eyed ones. Like he would smash them up against the side of the tank until their eyes popped. Whoa. I'm telling you, I would eat the koi. Yeah, you might become cat food real soon, I guess. But 
But the product, some. he's huge and badass looking, so it's kind of, I mean, like, down for him, so wanna... I'm going to name him Donald Trump. That's what I'm going to do. Dude, sell him. <laughs> sell him. Name him Donald Trump and sell his ass. Somebody yeah. Somebody yeah, Well, he's in, he's in Oregon, so I don't know how well that would be. He's clearly racist, so obviously. I, I tell you what you do. You ship him down south, you'll sell him. I need to figure out a way to put an orange wig on him. Hmm. <laughs> Does he need it? Isn't he already yeah, orange? Isn't it an orange koi? It's an orange koi. It's mostly white, actually. Which is fun. With orange top on. Mostly white. <laughs> I couldn't make it up, man. I couldn't make I it up. I need more rum. Couldn't make it up. <laughs> so what so, is... Yeah. Uh, what but is... maybe a smaller fish you know, will have more places to hide. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. There was also a uh, topic earlier that was brought up about um, colder water fish options or stuff that can work in colder water. And um, the other good options are perch. Uh, they're a great one. Um, and as well, yellow perch are good, uh, as well as catfish, um, like you were saying earlier as well. Panfish are another good one. Most of your panfish and crappie are really cold tolerant. Talking about the perch, bluegill is an excellent choice for cold water fish. Yep. So if you're, yeah, if you're stuck with cold water, and it depends on how cold you're talking. You may have an issue with your plants depending on how cold you're talking, if it's that cold all the time. Yeah, the biggest issue you have with the colder stuff is that your nitrogen cycle slows down. So you do really need right. to source a colder watered, and you can get um, bottled colder water nitrifying bacteria or if you can get a colder water source and get a small bit of initial seed bacteria that's colder water tolerant uh, from a cold stream, uh, like a, a snowmelt stream or some other cold source that's already adapted to that, um, you know, that's another another option for you as far as sources. Yeah, that that is darn sure good input for people, and, and a lot of people don't realize it that you need to look in your local area for that bacteria. If your your temperature is going to be whatever they are, yeah. like here in Texas, we our bacteria is in the air. It, it just takes a couple of weeks. But in some places, like uh, up in Colorado where you're at, you may need to look at that local stream to get that bacteria going. Mm -hmm. um, what is everybody's um, their plants of the? We usually do like a plants of the week. It's not a non-cannabis plant. So, what are your recommendations on maybe you know a couple plants that you like to grow? Or your favorite plants to grow in aquaponics, um, Roger, and then yeah, Marty and I knows what's up. And you said non-cannabis, correct? Yeah. Okay, because <laughs> they won't let me grow that here. No, um, yeah. one we of my cover favorites, that enough. One of my favorites here right now is is watercress. Um, and it's, it's because of what's in it. It's super green. I love the stuff. It grows quick. It's easy to grow. Anybody can grow it. You can grow it back. You can fart and grow this stuff. Um, it's it's that easy to grow. Yeah, you can rip a chunk of it off and throw it in another part of your media bed or your raft, and it'll just root right away. And yeah, if it, in like five days, it'll be a whole new plant. Yeah, if it wasn't for my catfish eating it, when I had it on top of the fish tank uh, a couple of weeks ago, it it had been huge. But now it's in my raft bed, so it's doing great. Yeah, we used to put it a lot in the bottom of the towers, on the bottom couple holes of the towers, because the bottom it would it would filter the water pretty good at the bottom, and then it would also rip over and work on like 
you know, passive plant food. The fish will jump up and grab it once in a while and, you know, rip off chunks and stuff. And my, my other favorite, again, is back to the tomatoes. We love the tomatoes and the peppers. Right on. Any particular uh, varieties of peppers or tomatoes? Well, I'm in Texas, jalapenos. And and I don't just mean the hot jalapenos. We, we like the mild variety as well. Um, gosh, I don't know where to go with that. There, there's so many. Maybe your top varieties you like, maybe. Or recommend to other people, maybe. There, there's a Goliath jalapeno um, that, that's considered a hot pepper. It's considered a hot jalapeno. But if you'll open this thing up after it gets full grown, remove the seeds, and just eat the flesh, it's not so hot. So you can you can handle it. The seeds are the hot part? Yes, sir. The seeds and the white flesh. Yeah. So if you'll, if you'll cut out the seeds and the white flesh inside, you, you will have a pepper you can actually take, and it has a great flavor. Not to mention, it's, it's another one of those superfoods. Awesome. What about you, so, um, probably one of my favorite ones to grow that we don't really talk about or really highlight that much, and I don't see talked about as much, <clears throat> is uh, oregano. It grows really well, um, and it's you know relatively uh, cold tolerant. I guess it will it'll slow down and not grow as much, but <clears throat> doesn't seem to have an issue. You know, down I would say to like you know. I grew it outside even when it was getting down to like 35 degrees at night and it was still surviving. Not, I wouldn't call it thriving, but it's a great plan <clears throat> all around. You could use it um, for obviously for cooking. Um, it's great to have to just be able to clip some off and use. It's kind of one of those harvest as you go sort of herbs. I use it in my bug spray mixes as um, one of the ones that I mix in. Um, and it's a, uh, so I, I find that I find a lot of uses for it. Um, we've actually put it in soap, in homemade soap that we have also, just for the smell of it. But for the most part, we use it in cooking. It's one of the things that we um, mix together with like other stuff that we grow in the system, like green onions, oregano, uh, <clears throat> rosemary, um, lots of different uh, herbs that we uh, mix up in a food processor and then freeze them into butter cubes. And it's a great way to be able to use excess that you have in your system. Um, and then you freeze them into cubes and you can use them whenever you want. You just throw them in, add them to a stir fry or anything that you want to be able to use them for. So um, I would say oregano is probably the one that I would choose for this week. Awesome. Um, so when I was down in um, Jamaica, there was this one guy we... Um, it's related to one of the guys we work with down there. His name is Roger. And he had all different kinds of basil that I had never seen before. They had like a citrus one, a lemon one, a chocolate one, a coffee one. Yeah. All these different crazy funky basils, and I had never never seen like that. There's a guy at the farmer's cool. market every week. He does that too. He's got like a dozen different kinds of basils and mints and all kinds of stuff. It's really cool. And those all grow real well in aquaponics, you know, some of your bread and butters. What kind yeah, of basil? Basil's a mint, just like, you know, well, it is a mint. It's in the same family. So yeah. 
It, it does excellent aquaponics. Does excellent anywhere it's wet. As long as it doesn't get root rot, it's good to go. And uh, the basil is also another one you can do a lot of cannabis grafting techniques. You know, topping it that behaves similarly. Pinching and bending it behaves similarly. So, you know, it's another one you can practice on aside from peppers. Not quite as good, but it, you can use a lot of similar techniques if you want to bush it out. Yeah, we got a Thai basil, I think, was what it was called from him one time. That's another good one. It was really good, um, really great in both cooking or just, any, you know, anything. We made some tea with it. Um, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Thai basil grows really densely as well. That's really good for that. Mm -hmm. I think they had a jasmine basil. They had all kinds of weird. They had an orange mint. And it was just like he just specialized in random stuff like that. So there was definitely some odd ones. Like apple mint. That was probably the weirdest one that was like, how does that even, <laughs> like, how do you start out, like, did it just happen by accident? It just happens to smell like apple? Because it does. Mm -hmm. Or if that happened on purpose or what. I don't know how they get all those. But My, my question would be, what kind of apple? It smells like a, sort of like a fresh cut green apple. All right. Like a, a ripe one, though, you know, like just a, like a, yeah, like a green apple that's ripe and ready to eat. If you slice it open, that's kind of what it smells like. So how they achieve that, I have no idea. So hopefully it's not some GMO crap. But. It is. It is. <laughs> no, not, it could be breeding. It could be breeding. There's a lot of funky heirloom varieties out there. Right, and and uh, there's also breeding as opposed to just GMO. So yeah. there are different ways to get variety without without GMO. But it does sound suspicious. Like I don't know, you know, what smells like an apple. How do you how do you cross that? But then again, I've they do that with weeds. So that weed. Yeah, I was just gonna say there's like blueberries. So I've definitely I've grown it and smoked it. So obviously well, it does yeah. happen. Lemon haze is just high in lemonine, but lemonine is also found in most citrus trees. So, so what you're telling me is, when you had a a blueberry smelling pot plant, mm -hmm. there was no blueberries. No, what it is is the, right. there's terpenes, and the same terpenes that are on a blueberry plant are also found in cannabis, but that's they're just expressed more in certain varieties. That's how you have these fruity varieties and stuff like that. It's about terpene profile. Um, the terpene extraction is really common in perfume and other types of uh, antibiotics and sterilization chemicals. Lemonine is used in, as a, a cleaner, for example, um, in a lot of things. Um, but, uh, you know, so it, it's nothing that's new. It's just that no one's ever really documented them all and, and gotten the profiles out in cannabis. Um, you know, most of the time your individual cannabis varieties can have you know, between 130 and 150 or 60 um, different terpenes, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, I I heard that, you know, getting arrested tends to slow down research, so that's that's probably yeah. why it's not overly documented. Terpenes are internationally illegal, at least for the time being, so. I'm sure they'll figure out something to do about that. <laughs> It'll probably uh, be a county restriction. They, people love their turpentine. Yeah, there you go. That's a little different, but yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Probably but, yeah. different terps there. Yeah, different terp. 
<laughs> Alright guys, I'm, I'm going to have to check out. I have to go out and release my new channel cat that are about four inches long into our system. So I, I've got to check out and go take care of that. No Alright, well, we appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thank hey. you for joining us. Um, everybody make sure you go check out his website. His website's uh, True Aquaponics. We'll have that in the um, in the base here. And then uh, do you have anything else you want to say or plug or whatever else or announcements or anything? Nah, that's enough. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, guys. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us this week. Y'all have a great evening. You too. All right. Uh, Marty, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? or? Um, I don't think so. I, uh, I had somebody private message me about something before, but I think we already covered it. Um, actually, I think it was KDAC who probably sent me the same thing that um, sent you, so that should be good. I don't have anything else on the. I'm like just looking at our posts from before, and I was not on last week, so I didn't have much to check on. So um, I don't have anything else that I can think of here. Um, watch for the videos I have coming out. Um, I just shot them right before uh, we went on the air, so I have a couple of videos of the system set up in the garage, so I'll be uploading those tonight. And, uh, yeah, other than that, I'm going to go watch the basketball game. Does uh, anybody else have any other questions um, in chat? I know there's quite a few people on. Um. Yes, so it's only the, the terpenes that do the, the flavor. Um, Lemonine is one example. I forget what the one for the blueberries is, but. That was another, just another one that an example. It's found in both plants. Um, it's just found in higher concentrations in some other plants. Um, plant builder asked, would I, I would have to say that the cannabis and blueberries are very few, if any, similar compounds. Thanks, guys. Good job. So, uh, anybody else have any other questions before we go? All right. If not, thanks for watching. Um, Marty, you wanna? mention your channel and how people can get a hold of you or find you and stuff? Uh, yeah, you can, you know, probably the best way to get a hold of us would be either just to comment directly on the videos. Uh, we have, uh, my channel is AP Meds, uh, Seeds at Potent Ponics. We have the Cannabis Growers group on Facebook. So Aquaponic Cannabis Growers is the name of the group, so you can look us up on there. We uh, post our builds, uh, videos, pictures, everyday kind of stuff to that. <clears throat> it's a great place to um, have discussions outside of the podcast. Uh, so definitely look at us there. We also, um, I remember aquaponics groups on Facebook. You can check those out. I, there's lots of them, UBI aquaponics, aquaponics. There's two of them just called aquaponics, I think. So um, you can always check out stuff on there. Lots of good information. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. So um, my website and channel is, uh, my website's potentponics.com. Um, my YouTube channel is potentponics. Um, thank you to uh, Atria Hydroponics for providing us with stuff to give away regularly. Um, Key to Life, that's the same deal. Um, and thanks to um, uh, Dude Grows and RealGrowers.com for uh, hosting us over there on, on DudeGrows.com. And... Um, yeah, and uh, thanks again to Roger for, for coming on the show this week and answering questions and uh, and talking to us. So um, definitely check him out. Um, there's links to all of our channels and websites and stuff in the in the um, the thing description at, at the end. So 
Thanks a lot, everyone, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right, thanks, guys.